Well, bless you. Boy, that was a good worship set, and I know you enjoyed it. And uh, if you're here with us for the first time in person, we want to welcome you back. And uh, I appreciate so much you cooperating as you come and go and um, social distancing, wearing the mask. You know, sometimes you may think to yourself, I don't need this, but it makes, you know, it can make somebody else feel safer. In other words, if somebody comes here and feels like that is a, a, contributing, a contributing factor, and most people say that it is, to uh, safety and you're, we're not wearing them, and of course it may uh, discourage them from coming back. And so appreciate you cooperating with that. And by the way, I read an article, this is encouraging, encouraging note, y'all want encouragement, right? Okay, this encouraging note, I read an actual article, supposed to be true, that says people who wear masks are actually more attractive than those who don't. Now, I don't know what that say, says about our looks, but that's another story altogether, isn't it? Our greatest struggle, Job chapter 1, we're going to be looking in the Bible uh, this um, morning, and as we do, we're going to be really looking at a whole book, and a book that is very disturbing at first read, at first glance. It's very haunting in some ways, and people have more questions probably about this book than any other book. And I open up the story by talking about a young man who wrote a little book based on the book of Job. And he, uh, he's going through an experience in life and he was looking for signs, looking for God to do something in his life. He went to a faith healing conference and one particular man who he could tell was not any kind, no way he was a plant, he got up and said, I believe that I've been healed of cancer. And he was so thrilled about it and this young man was so thrilled about it that he took his phone number and tried to keep tabs on him. Well, about six months into it, he called uh, this man's house. His wife answered the phone and said, I'm sorry, my husband's not here. He passed away just a few weeks ago with cancer. That devastated his faith. And so he began to look into the book of Job very closely, wrote a book on it, and went to a somewhat famous best-selling author and asked him, would you read this book, read my book on the book of Job, and would you write a foreword to it? And he, he agreed to do that once he read the book. And several months passed by. He called the young man, Robert by name, we'll call him. And he said, Robert, what about the book? When's it going to be published? I'm looking for it. And he said, well, it's going to be published just any time. But I want you to know, you need to know up front since you wrote the foreword to my book, I want you to know that right now I hate God. And he says, no, I really don't hate him. I actually don't believe in him anymore. And what had happened to this young man's faith his fiance had broken up with him. He was looking, still looking for signs for God to do something so he could actually see God, so had some, some evidence of God. And he became sick temporarily. And then he went through all kinds of questioning of God, even the book that he wrote based on the book of Job. And so he came to the point in his life, he just said, look, uh, I'm going to church tonight. I want you to do something in my life. Well, they prayed that night. The pastor prayed for a plane that went down over Alaska and killed eight people, one survived, and the pastor got up and started praising God for the one that survived. But in Robert's mind, he was thinking to himself, you know, if God was going to get the credit for the one that survived, he ought to get the blame for the eight that died. And so that night, he said, God, I'm putting my Bible in front of me. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray all night. I'm going to wait for you to give me a sign, for you to appear or speak to me in some way and I'm just going to wait on you. And if, if you do not speak to me tonight, I'm done with you. Well, he didn't hear the voice of God. Four o'clock in the morning, he said, this is useless. He went to sleep. 
The next morning he woke up, being a student at Wheaton College, a Christian college, had a lot of books, a lot of textbooks, as well as a lot of sermon prep books and books that he'd studied. He took all those books off his shelf, went downstairs, started his own little bonfire, and burned every single one of his books, including the Bible. What would cause a young man to do that? What kind of struggle was he having in the inner man when you and I have those same types of struggles, maybe just not that far? Or maybe we bury those struggles in our heart and they eat away at our faith like termites. And one day they begin to show themselves because we've never dealt with that. I've said in my book that our greatest struggle that we have is the struggle that we have with God. Now, I say that because we know that we're going to struggle with the devil. After all, you know, he hates us, and we're going to struggle with sin, with our own flesh. But God, I mean, he's supposed to love us, right? He's supposed to be a heavenly father to us. Why in the world does he not come to our rescue all the time? Why doesn't he answer our prayers, especially the way we want them to be answered when we're so desperate, when it really means something to us so much? And as we look at the series of Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo, we said that we become spiritually dizzy. We said that physical vertigo can be defined as our brain not being able to comprehend what our eyes are seeing. We get off balance. We get dizzy. Spiritual vertigo, then, is when our faith cannot comprehend what we see, hear, and experience in life. We think to ourselves like Robert, hey, look, I know what the Bible says. And maybe in, unlike in Robert's case, we don't hate God. We do believe in God. We do believe in the Bible. But what we're seeing and what we're experiencing in life doesn't always, is not always the same as what we find in the Bible. And we question that. And we struggle with God. I mean, after all, sometimes, come on, let's admit it, sometimes our troubles come because of our own personal sin. We bring it on ourselves. But sometimes we think to ourselves, God, look, I'm following you. Hey, I'm even going to church. I'm even giving something. I'm serving somewhere, having my devotional time every day. My heart is yours. I pray for this one thing that I'm just desperate for, and either you didn't answer it or you haven't answered it yet, and you begin to struggle, have those struggles in your mind with God. And no book captures that struggle more than the book or as much as the book of Job. And as we open up this book, I want to read uh, the first several verses, or here beginning in, in verse 8 at least, and read some verses to you to get an idea really of what's going on. In the book of Job, Satan has appeared before God, and he said this, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, this is verse 8, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I want you to notice in this passage that God admits that there's really not sin, there's no sin really in Job's life. No unconfessed sin. He is walking blameless and upright. Then Satan answered and said to him, Lord, does God or does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge, haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine, drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, 
the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sambians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, even then there came another and said, the fire of God fell on from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants and the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Do you get what I'm reading? God was taking everything, stripping everything away from Job, later even his children. And he says in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, fell on the ground in worship, and he said, naked I came into the world, my mother's womb rather, and naked shall I return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now we said we have trouble with relationships all the time. We have trouble relationships because we can't really communicate. The spouses can't communicate with one another. We're not communicating with teenagers. And we gave the illustration last week of trying to communicate to an animal. Because we're so different from the animals, and you would, you would say, if I can say this, intelligent, uh, for most of us at least, is more than the animal, right? For most of us. And it's hard to communicate, say, with a dog because you can say all you want to about to a dog, but unless they're trained in some way and really know your voice inflections, they're not going to know what to do. You can't communicate. When you think about a higher God reaching down to us and us trying to reach up to, to a God, it's very difficult to communicate. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the proposition I'll give to you this morning, and that is this. It's not that God can't do everything. It's not that God can't answer all of our prayers exactly the way he want, he, you want them to be answered. He can do that. But the complication is, is that he loves us. And love always compl complicates life and complicates every relationship. And we're going to find out how. First, I want us to look at the story that haunts us, the questions that hit us, the answer that helps us, the presence that holds us. First of all, the story that haunts us. We look at this beginning in chapter one. And there's a dialogue here in this book between three different dialogues. In the first couple of chapters, there's a dialogue between God and Satan. And then in the second part, chapters about four through 37, there's a dialogue primarily between Job and his friends. God shows up in chapter 38, never shows up until then. And now there's a dialogue after that between Job and God. Now notice, many people have called this the wager. He goes, God said, brags on Job. And you say, whoa, you know, I hope God never brags on me like that. But God brags on Job and Satan says, look, the only reason he's serving you is because of what you're giving him. He's serving you because he says he fears God for no reason. He fears you. He loves you. Why? Because of what you give him. Because of the blessings that you give to him in life. You take away the blessings, he is going to curse you to your face. And so here we find that Satan is just saying to this. He's saying, look, the only reason he loves you is because he loves what you give him. We've seen that before. In fact, um, you know, our children, our grandchildren sometimes can be that way. I know that uh, we've recently visited some of our grandchildren, and one of our granddaughters turned to Pam and said, uh, Nana, you know why I love you and want you, want you to visit us? And she said, no, why? 
He said, because you bring us presents. <laughs> and that's not the only reason, but you can get the idea. Have you ever been networked? I know I have. You know, somebody comes to you and they want to get to know you because they've been taught in the business world or uh, the medical field, whatever it is, to, to, to get to know someone that really knows their stuff. And then you learn from them. Or they can recommend you to a job. They can recommend you somewhere else. They can do this for you or do that for you. And suddenly, they're not, you're not able to do anything for them anymore. And so all of a sudden, they're gone. They weren't a friend at all. You've been networked. That's what Job was accusing, uh, or, or Satan was accusing Job of. He says, Job is networking you. And if you take away these things from him, he's going to curse you to your face. And so as we look at this, I want you to notice just a couple of things before we move on to the next point. One, Satan is the one who brought the, proposi brought the proposition. He was the one that initiated the whole conversation about, about uh, the temptation of Job. God did not bring this. He didn't bring, he's not the author of sin. He is not the author of temptation. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse 12 that God was in control of everything. He's ultimately in control. We can trust him because of that control that he has. He says, you can touch everything in his life, but you cannot touch him. So what are some of the questions that really hit us here? What are some of the questions? First of all, things like this happen to us, and we wonder, is God fair? One of the things that we need to notice from this passage that even in the end, God never told Job what he was up to. He never told him about this drama that's going on in the background. You know, some pastors would say, oh, this is happening with all of us now. And we just, we get an insight and we sneak behind the scenes. Other pastors say, no, this may never happen. This just happened this one time for sure. I don't know. God doesn't give us that answer. In fact, there's a lot of answers he does not give in this book. But there's a few very vital ones that he does. First of all, is God unfair? Look in chapter 1. I mean, my goodness, in verse 14, he loses his oxen. In verse 16, his sheep and servants, his camels. In verse 17, his children. In verse 19, he suffered physically. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. In, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. He lost the affection, the admiration of his wife. He lost the confidence of his friends. From chapter 4, verse 7, all the way through the end, basically, of chapter 37. He lost the confidence of his friends. Why? His friends were saying, look, this is the way God is. If you're good, he's going to bless you. If you're not good, he's not going to bless you. And they took a moralistic view of things, and God blows a hole in all of that kind of argument. We find here that God, I want to bring this out, did not create death, darkness, and destruction. People say, well, why does God allow suffering, period, in the world? And a lot of people have a, a great deal of problem with this. In fact, if anything that uh, I have, I've wrestled with more than anything else in the Christian life, it's this. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is it that that one is born with, with uh, deformities of some type or challenges in some, at, some, at some level? Why is it someone... With that, that's a drunk driver gets killed by or gets killed by a drunk driver, and they weren't drinking at all. Why is there so much? It seems like unfairness going on in the world. Well, keep in mind that God is just simply not the author of evil. Evil, which produces suffering in this world, is not a thing 
It's a lack. It's compared to darkness. It's compared to a void in the scripture. And so you don't shine a beam of darkness into a room of light to make it dark, but rather you cut off the light from the darkness or from the room and it becomes dark. Evil is a lack. Suffering is coming forth from this evil. And as we find this, as we look at this, we ask ourselves the question, well, why don't God just, just stamp all that out, just shine light everywhere? Well, the reason why we have evil in the world and sin in the world is because of this thing called free will. And anytime you give people free will, there's a possibility there of them doing the wrong thing. There's a possibility of somebody killing somebody else. Possibility of somebody stealing from someone else, conning someone else, lying to someone else. There's always those possibilities and probabilities because we are given free will. Now, to get rid of all suffering in the world from here on out, God would have to take away free will. And that's just fine with me. Your free will, not mine, just yours. Yeah. Don't we all feel that way? Yeah, don't take away my free will, God, but because I'm responsible. Take away the guy who's trying to come in my house and rob me and kill me. Take away his free will. But not mine because I'm so, no, God would have to take everyone's free will away because all of us have sinned, all of us are capable of sin, and all of us will sin again. To take away all suffering from the world, period, past, present, and future, he would have to take away all of us. Because we have sinned, we have cast a giant shadow in this world because of all that, and because of that, there's suffering that goes on in the world. Now, we look at this and we ask ourselves, is God unfair? Well, here's the, here's the dilemma. God is God, and he's fair about everything because he created fairness. But we ask ourselves the question, is God silent? Why? Why would God be so silent and not answer my prayer? For the first, first 37 chapters, God says nothing to Job. And here you're sitting here today, maybe with unanswered prayers. And you've been praying and asking God and begging God and maybe fasting and, and cleaning up your life, we'll say. And yet the answer doesn't come. The third question, is God absent? Why doesn't he really intervene in my life? That was Robert's dilemma. Look, I would believe in God, he says, if he would show up. I would believe in God if he would speak to me in some way, an audible voice, or show up in person, or do some fantastic miracle so I can really believe him. Because we all know that works, right? We all know that works. I mean, if God were to really show you a great miracle, you would believe him. Well, according to the Bible, not so much. In fact, you look in the Bible of the book of Genesis and you will find that Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and not only were they witnessing the miracles in front of them, but also the Bible says in Genesis chapter three, they heard the voice of the garden, of the voice of God walking in the garden. I don't know what that means. How do you hear a voice walking in the garden? But God's presence was there. How did that end up? Eve, Adam and Eve did not even have a sinful nature. They weren't pulled by the flesh for any sin at all. And yet they ate, they ate of the forbidden fruit and all of us are contaminated with sin because of it. They sinned. What about the book of Exodus? My goodness, if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie, right? The Ten Commandments. 
One of those movies, 10 plagues come upon Egypt. There are frogs everywhere. Uh, next, the next time the Nile is filled with blood and just bloody. And one sign right after another, 10 different plagues. They go out in the wilderness rich because the Egyptians were just giving them money to get rid of them. They go out into the wilderness. They got backed up to a Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. The Bible says manna after that fell from heaven, bread from heaven. And they hated the breakfast food, by the way. They said so. So what happened there? Well, when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments on the Mount Sinai, he was gone for many, many days. What happened? They made a golden calf and worshipped it and said, let's go back to Egypt. What about the prophets? Well, God spoke through his prophets in the olden days. Yes, he did. He spoke to the prophets. Many miracles happened because of the prophets, like in the days of Elijah and Elisha. What happened there? The Bible says they fell into sin over and over and over again. Just in one book alone, the book of Judges, they fell seven different times, folks. Seven different times. They went so far into sin that another foreign government came and took them over. And then, please, let's not forget about Jesus coming uh, and dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus came and performed all kinds of miracles. He healed the sick, raised the dead. He cast out demons. What happened to him? They nailed him to a cross. And not too many people on that day really objected to it. You see, seeing things, experiencing things, is not always something that's going to mature your faith. So what is the answer? I want you to notice something here in verse 20 and following. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, if something like that happened here, you would think, man, that guy's really lost the victory. Somebody just stood up here and just started tearing their clothes and falling out. But look, look what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. He says, everything here in life is a stewardship. God's given me something for a brief time, and now I'm giving it back up earlier than I thought. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He said all this, chapter 1. You look in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and pretty soon Job and his patience begins to, begin to wear thin, and he does accuse God. More than questioning God, he begins to accuse God not as much maybe as his friends, but he still began to accuse the Lord. He struggled as well in his life. Here's the thing. What we need to understand as we're looking at this journey from doubt to faith, the currency to love God and to show God's love in return, are you ready for this? The currency is faith. Trusting him with our life. Trusting him in spite of everything that's going on in life. You say, well, I just don't think that's fair. I think I need to be able to choose God's love language for him. And if God's love language ought to be good works. And I do good works. And so, therefore, that ought to be honoring to God more than anything else. Somebody else says, well, you know, I not only do good works, but I pray a lot. Man, I pray a lot. I fast a lot. And that ought to be God's currency for great, great uh, uh, love toward him. You know, many of you have read the book, perhaps, by Gary Chapman called Love Languages. Anybody here read that book? A few of you? And it basically says, uh, uh, and this is not from the Bible, but he's a good Christian writer. 
And he says, basically, there's five different love languages, and some of them are like affection, another acts of service, another affirmation. And what he says we have a tendency to do is to whatever our love language is, we express that love in the same way, and that's why relationships are so, are, are so difficult. Somebody says, well, I have the gift of service. I don't, but if I have the gift of service, therefore, I'm going to go out and mow your lawn when you're sick. And if I'm sick and you don't mow my lawn, then you don't love me. I've shown love toward you, but you haven't shown love toward me. Or I need, somebody says, I need admiration. I need encouragement. So you go and encourage all these other people, and they just kind of blow it off. It's not their love language. Somebody else says, well, my, mine's gifts, so I keep giving things to people, and these birthday cards and Christmas cards, I never get any in return. Or only a few. What we're expecting is everybody else to have the same love language that we have. You have, you really, if you want to say have a right, I don't want to use that term, but for lack of a better term, you have a right to choose your own love language. God has a right to, certainly to choose his. And you say, well, God's love language is obedience. If you love me, keep his commandments. But even that requires a great deal of faith. Here's what he says in Hebrews eleven six. He says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. You just can't please him without faith. For he that believes, draws near to God, must believe that he is, he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. And so here's the dilemma here. Here's the tension that we're going through. God's currency is faith, trusting in him in spite of everything that you're going through. And that's what God is teaching us every single time we step off on the scales to go through a trial. When we're tested, he's growing our faith. And he says, you've got to exercise that faith. But here it is. You, you have to exercise that faith in such a way that all the other things will not make a difference. But, but in your faith, he's still, going to, he's, going to, he's still going to pay you. Now, here's what I'm saying. Get what I'm saying. When your motive should never, your, your motive and mine should never be, I love God, I have faith in God, because what I'm getting paid. On the other hand, he says, without that motive, as you trust God, you must believe that he exists and you're going to get paid. Yes, you are, but that's not the motive that you do things. You do them because you love him. And you do things to express your faith in him. And expressing your faith is first and foremost giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Job was going through a test. And let me say that God only allowed Satan, listen very carefully. If you missed this, you've missed the message. God only allowed Satan to accomplish what Satan did not want to accomplish and to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in Job. Job was at a point in his life where he thought, hey, God's enough for me, but he wasn't. And that's the question. Is God enough? That was the question, and he was in between. In chapter 1, you would think, yeah, God's enough for Job. He doesn't need all this, this other stuff in his life, even people in his life. He's willing to trust God to provide his every need. He's willing to trust God with his emotions. He's willing to trust God with his mental capabilities. Everything in his life, he's willing to trust God. But then as we go on into the book, we found out not so much. He's in transition. And the question was, was God enough? And Satan came in to attack to expose Job as a hypocrite and a fraud, but God knew better. 
And what he would expose to Job was where he stood with God and where he needed to go. And we look at this in this answer. And we know that Job struggled all throughout the book. But through the trials of life, God says, it's the only way I'm going to really complete you. Listen to what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He was saying to Job, look. God was saying, and God will say here in just a moment, here's what I'm doing. Here's where you are. Here's where you were. Here's where you are. Here's where you need to be. You think you're here, but I'm going to show you you're not. Satan, on the other hand, totally different method here, totally different motive. I'm going to show you that Job is not the man you think he is. So God allowed Satan to show Job where he was, to show Job where he needed to go, to come to the place in his life where he says, God is enough. We look at this final answer, the presence that holds us, because in the, in the aftermath of everything, what we want to know more than anything else, what I want to know, what you want to know, when I go through this trial, God, are you with me? And this book answers the question, God, are you with me? And the answer is yes. I want us to turn way over to... Uh, the end of the book. If you have your Bibles with me, you can turn there. God shows up. And God shows up in such a way that we don't expect. Because God should show up, right, and, and say, look, uh, Job, here's the answers you're looking for. Uh, I'm not unfair because let me defend myself. I am, I'm not silent. Let me defend myself. Let me give you the answers. Let me show you behind what was going on behind the scenes. No, he never addresses those things. In fact, I want you to notice something that he comes with. It wasn't answers. It was questions. He says in verse 4, chapter 38, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line on it? Verse 8, or who shut up at the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, its garments, and thick darkness, its swaddling band. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days begun and caused the dawn to, to know its place? Have you entered in the springs of the sea? Verse 16, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 18, I have, you, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? He says, where were you when I created all this? Tell me, you have the answers. You've not only questioned me now, but you've accused me, and I'm just letting you know that you have no basis of accusing. Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I created the sky? When I created the clouds and the stars? Were you there when I created man? Were you there when I created the oceans and the, the seas and the, and the waters and the rivers? And Job had a great deal of conviction in his own heart. And through this, he not only rebukes Job, but also his friends, never telling what was really going on. Why? Because God only allowed Satan to accomplish what he did not want to accomplish and to accomplish what God himself wanted to accomplish in Job's life. What was that? Our greatest, listen, our greatest struggle. Here it is. Our greatest, the reason our greatest struggle is our struggle with God is because we've never come to the place 
of saying, God, you are enough. And when all these things come into play and they're taken away, we're thinking, God, how dare you take that away? I was depending on that, that money, that relationship. I was depending on that. I didn't have that before, but now that I have it, you, I, I've sort of grown used to that, and I've liked that. And you're not enough anymore. Oh, you were last year, but this year, just not enough. I'm going through many trials in life. I'm going through the COVID crisis, and I'm locked up in my house, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. God, you know, you were enough before, but now I'm not at the place where you aren't enough anymore. And we begin to question God. God, are you absent? Why aren't you coming to my rescue and answering the prayer that I want you to ask? Because you're not enough. Why, why, aren't, why aren't you there? I mean, it's unfair that you're taking away things from me to show me that God is not enough for me. God, you're just not there. You're not for me because God is not enough for me. That's the struggle that we have. God is saying, look, the currency to love me back as I have loved you is trusting in me. And you're trusting in me because I'm enough. And Job was not at that point, but he got to that point. Let me close out by reading these verses in chapter 42. Job comes back on the scene, and as he does, he says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. See, it wasn't that God could not do all things. He just loved Job, and that complicated the relationship. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is that hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore... I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Conviction in his heart because of what he went through. You see, God, God was saying, look, Job, I love you. I love you and I hurt with you. Remember Jesus crying over the city of Jerusalem. Remember when Lazarus died, the Bible says he, Jesus cried. There's not a point in time in our own life that he doesn't hurt for us and love us. And you say, well, look, I, I need some evidence here at least from Scripture that God loves me. I mean, I hear that all the time. God loves, God loves. How do I know he loves me? Job in the Bible is a type of all of us. But he's also a type of Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, at that point, took on your sins and mine on the cross. And at that point in time, he became the only person in the history of the world that was ever totally forsaken by God. The Father could not stand to look upon the sin that Jesus was carrying for us. He turned his back on the Son, and for a moment, he was forsaken of the Father, the only one that had ever been forsaken. You see, God was answering the question, are you with me? And the, answer's, the answer is yes. The minister that Robert went to 
was Philip Yancey, an author. And he tells his own testimony because Robert asked him, he said, now why is it? Why is it that you believe in God, you've gone through some stuff, you believe in God and I don't? And Yancey just simply told him the story of how when he was in Bible college in South Carolina, they used to go to the University of South Carolina, witness to people, and they're supposed to write down the names of the people they witnessed to and keep account of how many they shared Christ with. He said he'd go to the University of South Carolina on a Saturday, spend all day there doing nothing, write down a bunch of made-up names, turn them in. Didn't want to be at that college. Didn't really believe in God. During a prayer meeting, all of them were circled around, several of them circled around praying, each one of them pouring out their heart to God and praying for the people of, uh, at the University of South Carolina, praying for the needy, praying for uh, those who are, are deep need, like they just studied the, the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible. So they were praying about how they could be that Good Samaritan. Came around to Philip Yancey, and he says, God, I want you to know that I have absolutely no concern for any of those so-called lost people at the University of South Carolina. None. And he goes on to say other things. I simply just don't believe this about what you say in the Bible at all. And you can imagine what these kids around, they're, they're college students, they were thinking, what is this guy praying? And he said, in this good Samaritan story, I just, I could care less about the needy of the world. I just don't care. And he said that moment, something changed in his heart. Because instead of looking at just the beat up man on the road and the good Samaritan standing over him, he looked at the good Samaritan as being Jesus and himself being the beat up man. And he said it as though Jesus wiped his tears and the blood off his face. He left the prayer room immediately, stormed out, called his girlfriend, his fiance, and said, you know, I think I may have just had my first encounter with God. And that led him to faith in Christ that evening. Years later, after his mother passed, he's going through some old photos, and he noticed some crumpled up photos. And what had happened, his dad died at the age of 24 with polio. And he was on this iron lung, and the only way he could breathe this iron lung, and he was turned really face down. And so the only way he could see his family is for his wife to shove kind of between the steel and the glass photos of the family, her and the two sons, including Philip. Philip was less than a year old when all this was going on. His dad died. His dad died looking at these photos. And he said this, I've often thought of that crumpled photo, for it is the one of the few links connecting me to the stranger called my father, a stranger who died a decade younger than I am now, Someone I have no memory of, no sensory knowledge of, spent all day, every day, thinking of me, devoting himself to me, loving me as he could. Perhaps in some mysterious way, he is doing that in another dimension. I mention this, he says, this story, because the emotions I felt when my mother saved these photos, these crumpled photos, and I saw them with the same emotions I felt that February night in the college dorm room when I first believed in God of love. Someone is there, I realized. Someone is watching life as it unfolds on this planet. More, someone is there who loves me. It was a startling feeling, a wild hope. 
a feeling so new and so overwhelming that it seemed fully worth risking my life on. It seemed further, really worth putting my total faith in, my total trust in. For it's impossible to please God without faith. Those who come to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We come to the place in our life, and God is moving in our life where we say, God, you're enough. Now he's going to bring something else, another blessing in our life. We're going to get used to it. We're going to struggle with it all over again, as Job, I'm sure, did. But at this moment, would you say as a believer, could you say that in your own heart, God, the reason I'm having trouble with my relationship because you're just not enough. God, I, I need, through these trials that I'm going through, for you to show me where I am and show me where I need to go. And then so there's some people here or watching my video on television that you've never come to know Jesus Christ. You've never made that decision to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let me invite you to do that right now. Let me, let me ask you to come to that realization in your life that you cannot save yourself. Jesus died on the cross for you that proved his love toward you, that he took on your sins and mine, rose again on the third day in order to give you life. And all you have to do, the Bible says, is call on the name of the Lord and be saved by total grace, total grace, a gift. God's given you a gift and all you have to do is receive it. I'm going to ask you to do that right now. With heads bowed and eyes closed, not only here but also at home, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to realize that you're enough to save me and enough to live for. In Jesus' name, amen.